Hey, Dr. Bernard here. This bonus episode of Heme Review is an audio exclusive. So Heme Review is on YouTube. I think everyone here knows that. Um, every episode so far of the podcast has had a video counterpart. So if in the case you need the visual element for an explanation, I got you covered. But for this bonus episode, I'm going to keep it audio exclusive, at least for now. So in the off chance you haven't seen the Heme Review YouTube channel, I have the link in the show notes. Before we get started for today, thanks to everyone who gives a monthly pledge support to the show. I have that link in the show notes too. I'm going to be honest, everything that I do online, it's a hobby. And so for the podcast, I have the monthly support option turned on, but it's definitely not required. I know times are tough right now for everyone. So greatly appreciate to anyone and everyone supporting. Thank you so much. And I'm going to roll the sponsor now so that the rest of this episode is uninterrupted. Thanks again. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. In the previous episode, I described a dad who drank a homemade snow globe. Usually snow globes are just made of water, but this one being a homemade craft, it turns out it had a lot of ethylene glycol in it. If you missed it, I have the link in the show notes. Ethylene glycol is metabolized to oxalate. Oxalate forms an ionic solid crystal with calcium, which gets caught in the kidneys and permanently damages the tubules. So in this case, ethylene glycol becomes oxalate, but we also eat oxalate in our diet. It's found in peanuts and iced tea. It's also in chocolate, spinach, and sweet potatoes. So if you consume too much of those, one of the things that can happen to you is calcium oxalate crystals causing nephropathy. But why does calcium oxalate cause damage? Do they really just block flow in the kidneys? Or do they have sharp edges that scratch the endothelial lining? Or is there really something else happening at a cellular level? When we think of crystals in the body, calcium oxalate isn't the only one. Gout is caused by uric acid crystals that deposit in the joints, very commonly in the big toe. Kidney stones are crystals, gallstones are crystals too, but think about this. Calcium oxalate crystals are anywhere from 1 to 10 micrometers in size. Uric acid crystals causing gout can be 10 times that size, but I mean, that's still really small. And if you've ever seen some kidney stones, they're 100 micrometers up to 1 centimeter in diameter, meaning that we're looking at 1 million times larger than calcium oxalate. And the thing is, calcium oxalate isn't the smallest crystal. We can go into the nanoparticle range, which is 1,000 times smaller than the smallest calcium oxalate crystal. So if we're looking at a range that spans 10 orders of magnitude, we can guess that the largest of these crystals would be at a minimum actually disrupting flow in the body. They can block the flow of blood, they can block the flow of bile and pancreatic enzymes. So there's a mechanical obstruction at the largest end of the particle size spectrum. But what would a nanoparticle do? Well, maybe it could stick to a surface? And that way, it would disrupt an endothelial lining. And very small particles can cause disruptions in hydrodynamic flow as well. I recently saw a video on YouTube where someone submerged a tripod in the Dead Sea, which is 10 times more salty than an ocean. After an hour, you could see small salt crystals all over the tripod, which did disrupt the tripod's legs' ability to telescope out. And in the body, these small particles could aggregate and disrupt movement. Again, another mechanical obstruction analogous to 
small salt crystals grinding along a telescoping tripod leg. But because we're talking about the human body, we're looking at a biological system. It doesn't just stop at mechanical obstruction. Take, for example, the longest word in the English language, Numano ultramicroscopic silicovolcano coniosis, also known as pneumoconiosis, which can be shortened as silicosis. That is the inhalation of free crystalline silicon dioxide. Chronic silicosis is a progressive, massive fibrosis of the lungs. You see it happen to underground miners, people looking for coal and metals who are drilling. That drilling agitates the earth and causes the enclosure to dust up. These workers inevitably breathe in silicon dioxide crystals from this dust, among many other things. And over time, their lungs start to remodel. It starts to change. Here in the United States, a lot of people want to have granite kitchen countertops. Those are stones that have to be cut. What happens when they do get cut? Silicon dioxide crystals get scattered in the air, and the workers breathe it into their lungs. In China, there was a documentary that was published earlier this year in 2020 titled Miners, Mafus, and Pneumoconiosis. It highlighted the life of a company in a part of China that's so remote, not even the police would follow them. They ran an illegal mining operation in a mountain, and the protagonist, who had been a miner for this organization for many years, developed silicosis. He knows he has it, but he continues to mine because he needs the money. And over the course of weeks, the video shows him slowly dying in front of his family. On the outside, he looks okay. There's no indication that he's sick at all, but he can't breathe. He can't exert himself at all. On some days, he can't even get up. And as his lungs harden inside his body, his condition gets worse. And on May 14, 2018, his village experienced a blackout. He ran out of supplemental oxygen, and they couldn't get him into a hospital on time, as the documentary ends at his funeral. I'm not sure if I can distribute the documentary, because even in China, it was really hard for my colleagues there to find it. But think about what was happening small amorphous silicon dioxide crystals caused fibrosis. Fibrosis is a tissue remodeling. When something gets remodeled in the human body, we're usually looking at inflammation, meaning that when we're looking at crystals and crystallopathies, it's not just mechanical obstruction that happens with the large particles, but also cell signaling pathways that cause the body to react in a way that destroys itself from inside out. So how does this actually happen? Well, As we know it right now, it may be that crystalline silica can generate free radicals with aqueous media in the lungs, that's moisture in the lungs at a micro scale. But also, the free radicals could be generated by phagocyte activity, meaning cells can engulf the silica crystals, which can be around 10 nanometers in size. And in this context, the goal of phagocytosis is to degrade and destroy the particles ingested, so the phagosome structure that's formed fuses with the lysosome, but the lysosome has proteases, which are enzymes that break down proteins. Silica crystals aren't proteins. Free radicals are created. The lysosome is destabilized. Cell stress increases, and this disruption causes a leakage of those proteases in the cell cytoplasm, and the cell mistakenly digests itself, called 
autophagy. And what happens when a cell dies like this? This wasn't programmed cell death, so it's not apoptosis. That would be a quote-unquote clean cell death because it's something that was supposed to happen, but this wasn't supposed to happen. The crystals weren't supposed to be there in the first place. They provided a stimulus known as a danger-associated molecular pattern, also known as a DAMP, that kicked off a signal that we're starting to learn more about called an inflammasome activation. The inflammasome is a multi-protein complex, so keep that in mind. It's created by genes that we have, and the expression can be turned on and off at specific times. It recruits procaspase 1, which at first is an inactive enzyme. Remember, a suffix means enzyme. And all of this activates interleukin 1. Well, what's interleukin? It's a cytokine, which is a protein messenger that serves as a signal for inflammation. So the phagocytosis of a crystal at the nano or micrometer range can destabilize the phagolysosome, causing the activation of an inflammasome, which recruits an enzyme that activates interleukin, a protein messenger that signals for inflammation. But how does the dysfunction of a lysosome activate an inflammasome protein? There has to be some kind of signal there, right? And if there is, what is it exactly? Well, experiments have been done to guess what's happening here. Some think that there's an ion flux that's happening to activate the inflammasome. Of these are the usual suspects, potassium leaving the cell, because potassium is the major intracellular cation. Sodium going into the cell, since it's the major extracellular cation. But potassium leaves the cell anyways for many different reasons. It's not a unique marker, and this can't be the only reason why inflammation is happening. There's also movement of calcium, which is a potent signaler, and also the movement of chloride out of the cells. These are all good to know, but may not be particularly helpful in understanding how we could treat someone whose disease is caused by crystals. We know the mitochondria can create reactive oxygen species, which can activate inflammasomes. But do you remember those proteases that are leaked by lysosomes? Some of them are called cathepsins, and they activate inflammasomes. In a model of cholesterol crystal-induced inflammasome activation, Mice who were deficient in cathepsin B or L produced little interleukin-1 compared with wild-type, meaning that when they didn't have those cathepsins, which came from the lysosomes as proteases, there was no interleukin-1 that was released. And if we go further, it's not just silica crystals and cholesterol crystals, but uric acid crystals that all initiate the same pathway to inflammation, meaning that from the nanometer to micrometer range of particle size, a cascade of cell stress, autophagy, and inflammation take place because of the presence of crystals. So while the larger particles are in fact blocking flow, smaller particles are causing fundamental changes to the tissue at a cellular level. These crystals include calcium oxalate, calcium phosphate, asbestos, misfolded protein complexes like the amyloid beta that's found in Alzheimer's, also with prion disease like mad cow, and also cigarette smoke-related microparticles. And in the manner of how the amyloid beta misfolded protein that's found in Alzheimer's disease destabilizes lysosome to cause inflammation causing brain atrophy, the concept of crystallopathy is brought together under the concept of cell signaling pathways causing irreversible changes at the tissue level. And it's not done here. Do you remember that inflammasome is a multi-protein complex? Well, proteins are made from our genetic sequence, and these proteins making up the complex can be expressed at different times. What happens if there's a gain-of-function mutation inside a cell that causes the inflammasome to activate spontaneously. This will cause 
inflammation as if there was a crystal present when there isn't a crystal present. This can be the cause of autoimmune disease where someone's immune system is inappropriately activated to attack their own organs. One disorder where this happens is cryopyrin-associated periodic syndrome, which features rash, fever, arthritis, hearing loss, aseptic meningitis, and intellectual disability, all because of inappropriate immune activation. This inflammation also happens to be present with cancer. You see, in certain cancers like lung, pancreatic, and colorectal, IL-1-beta can be overexpressed. And given that the NLRP3 inflammasome is a major activator of IL-1-beta, the link appears to be clear. In the case of pancreatic cancer, IL-1-beta produced by pancreatic tumor cells appeared to promote the activation of certain pancreatic cells that would recruit other immune cells to protect the region from the rest of the immune system. If you're a tumor, you probably don't want the immune system attacking you, so hijacking a local system to protect you would encourage your growth. And in pancreatic cancer, a thick fibrous mass called a stroma develops that encapsulates the tumor so that medicines can't get in. And because the pancreas is placed right adjacent to major blood vessels, most surgeries can be incredibly risky, which is why you hear the term borderline resectable more often in pank than in other cancers. So inflammation arises in crystallopathies. We know that crystals on the nano and micrometer scale for particle size can get phagocytosed, and the resulting phagolysosome is disturbed because these crystals aren't meant to be consumed. The leakage of proteases from those structures activates a multi-protein complex called an inflammasome, which recruits an enzyme that activates interleukin, which signals for immune activation. This inflammation results in various events ranging from fibrosis and tissue remodeling to necrosis. So the ingestion of ethylene glycol, causing calcium oxalate crystals to inflame the kidneys, is toxicology. A coronary plaque rupturing and causing inflammation, leading to the formation of a clot in the heart, causing a heart attack, is cardiology. Spontaneous activation of the inflammasome in cells causing autoimmune disease is rheumatology, and obtaining a gain-of-function mutation in a precancerous cell to activate inflammasomes so the tumor can create an immunosuppressive environment where the tumor can start to thrive is oncology. And all of these are areas of medicine that are unified under a relatively recent new understanding of a single cellular pathway. If you'd like to read more about any of the topics that I discussed in this episode of Heme Review, check out the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Take care of yourself and be well.